welcome to the Hikmah Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, writer, medievalist, and founder of Hikmah. We're calling this season The Art of Alternatives because we're looking at how people bring their values and skills across contexts in really interesting ways that are inspiring both personally and intellectually. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Crystal Marie Moten. Crystal is a historian who specializes in 20th century United States and women's gender history with a specialization in African-American women's history. Her research examines Black women's struggles for economic justice in the 20th century urban North. She currently works as curator of African-American history in the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. She's also public historian in residence at American University, and both of those roles are in Washington, D.C. Crystal and I have had many very generative coffee conversations about social enterprise and the ways that people cross contexts to do good work and what that means in both the way that you find purpose and the way that you thrive in your personal life. And she's really been an inspiration well before and throughout the development of Higma. So I'm really pleased to be able to share this conversation between Crystal and our course participants with you. Hope you enjoy. Well, thank you, everyone. All right. Um, Crystal, would you please tell us um, sort of what you're doing now and, and how you got to where you are? Yeah, awesome. I would love to. Um, so right now, uh, professionally, I am working as a curator of African-American history at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. Um, and so curator there, I've been at the museum. I just made my two-year anniversary last week. Um, I've spent more time working from home than in the actual museum because of our current global crisis, global health crisis. Um, but I got to the museum um, after really having um, a reckoning about how I wanted to be a historian and how I wanted to use the skills that I had both learned in graduate school and postgraduate school. And so I ended up um, coming to the museum. I was a professor, um, assistant professor of history for six years, um, I worked at two institutions, both small liberal arts colleges, one on the East Coast, one in the upper Midwest. And what I realized about working, um, doing history in those environments uh, was that the, the audience that I wanted to reach was, the audience that I was reaching was different from the audience I wanted to reach. And the audience I wanted to reach was a kind of a small privileged uh, group of folks, um, um, diverse in some ways, undiverse in other ways. Um, but I wanted more people to have access to the stories that I know and love, that I studied, that I experienced personally, um, and that I thought that under people knowing would help to transform our world and bring us closer to liberation and justice, specifically for African Americans or Black folks. And so um, at, the, at the museum, um, some, some positions came up for scholars who had research, writing, and communication skills in African American history. And although I had never worked at a museum, I love museums. 
but I didn't particularly have any specific museum training. I just threw my hat in the bag um, and I really learned about the job as I went through the interview process. And through that interview process, I figured out that, oh, this is something I can use my skills toward um, as well as put the, the topic that I love more on a national um, platform. And so that's what brought me to the, the American History Museum. Now, um, because I came from the professoriate, I still had a number of projects I was working on, including um, writing a book, which I'm in the process of um, almost finishing, um, as well as really still being interested in, um, in education. You know, that is, that is my calling, I believe. Um, even though my, my professional work revolves around history, I do believe my calling in life is to be an educator. And so that's, that's, that's in my heart. And so I'm always looking for ways to, to teach. And so at the museum, you know, you can do public programs, you can talk to small audiences, um, but you know, there really is not, you can adjunct, which I also do, um, but there really is not a, a dedicated pathway um, toward education as a curator. And so this led me to think about, okay, the intersection of education, of digital studies and black history. And that's what led me to start the podcast, which you all um, have, many of you have listened to the pilot episode. And so that kind of feeds my love of education, my love of sharing stories, um, and my love of introducing black history to uh, very broad audiences. So that's a little bit about where I am right now and how I got to be where I am. Thanks. I, I love how you've talked about being an educator as a calling and also education taking all these different forms. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be a scholar and how much you see yourself as a scholar in all these different facets of your life. Yeah, you know, that's that's a very interesting question because there are some who would say that because I, um, you know, I left the professoriate, I'm no longer in the academy that um, I'm either not a scholar or I'm not an academic, right? And I see myself um, as both because for me, a scholar pursues knowledge, right? A scholar uh, pursues, um, is in pursuit of answering various types of questions and what I think now is that I have more tools in my toolkit to answer questions about the topics that matter most to me. And so I see myself as a scholar because I'm interested in the pursuit and the dissemination of knowledge, right? And that can happen, I mean, that can happen anywhere, actually. You know, I think of scholar broadly, broadly um, defined as well as knowledge and as well as um, intellectualism. And that's kind of part of what my research project is about as well. Um, and so I definitely see myself as a scholar, but with more tools at my disposal because I am in, I'm able to cross uh, many different kind of mediums as well as different uh, types of industries now. I love that. Thank you. I love that explanation. I've been thinking a lot about a term that's come up in our, in our conversations a lot with different people in this course about what it means to be an independent scholar. Um, yeah. And I keep playing with this idea of the networked scholar, right? None of us really operate totally on an island on our own. And so one of the things that being a scholar outside of those traditional academic structures opens up for you is that you can do your scholarship in collaboration with all kinds of folks and however you want. I mean, this event being a case in point. Yeah. Yes, I, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, in 
The thing about being a scholar for me, um, and it, you might be able to make it to generalize, but I, I, I'm not really a theory person, so I hate generalizing and I'm a historian. So it's context, time and space, right? And so um, thinking about being a scholar, you always have to be embedded within a community, right? Because while many times, um, especially for the humanities, you know, we are mostly single authored, independent, working on your own project, right? And it can, it can seem like, okay, you're just, you know, you're, you're one little self off in your office doing your own independent project. But actually, in order for you to get your project done, you need to be in community. And that community, you know, can be you know, you're creating that community with your research, with the revision process, you know, disseminating your research. And so for thinking about independent scholar, I have to think about independent of what, right? Because you're not independent of, um, of a community of support. You're not independent of a community of um, research. You're not independent of a community of of care, right? And so what are you, what are you no longer depending on? perhaps the academy, right? And so you, you, you have to, I qualify that independent because I don't think I can do scholarship uh, alone. I mean, there's no way, there's no way that I can do, I can pursue um, my, my scholarly agendas just, you know, from my home office <laughs> by myself. <laughs> you know, so. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what the community in which you do your scholarship looks like? How does that work for you? Yeah, I, um, I find that I thrive with multiple types of communities, right? And sometimes um, these communities or networks, as you just refer to them as, um, they can overlap, you know, they can, or they can be distinct, right? And so, for example, like for my work at the museum, in terms of being a curator, which really focuses on acquiring objects for the museum and the national collection, uh, creating exhibits, doing programs around the research, right, that I'm involved in, you know, each of those museum specific tasks requires a different community of folk, like, a, and of course, sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't, they don't, but say, take, take that, take that one, take one task, right, acquiring an object, you know, for me to be able to acquire an object, I have to have relationship with people, right, to understand, okay, What's my topic? My specific topic is Black business and labor history, right? What am I trying to learn about Black business and labor history? Me, I'm trying to learn about uh, the working conditions of Black women over the course of the 20th century, all right? Where am I trying to go to get this information? Who do I know in these places? What organizations might have the answers? What people might have the answers to the questions that you know I have? And thinking about kind of acquiring objects, you just don't swoop in, swoop down, get the object, fly back out, you are constantly in conversation and collaboration, developing relationships with folks from whom you want to, you know, uh, understand their story, and then also um, acquire the object, right? And so that's just one set of communities that can be overlapping, um, that can have multiple kind of entry points that I engage in, right? And that's just for the museum side of my work. Now, when I think about kind of my, my book project, I think about other, you know, other types of, of, of communities. But yeah, so yeah, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, any questions from the group? I certainly have more, but I don't want to hog all the time. Um, 
Uh, Kendra, go ahead. Crystal, I was interested in what you were saying in your podcast about coming at things from inside the circle. That's very much um, how I do things as well, both in terms of my fiction and my creative business. I was wondering as someone who kind of is in a lot of different circles, academic and museum and et cetera, what kind of pushback, if any, you get from insisting on that personal angle when you tell your stories? Yeah, I think one of the, so being a historian, you know, we are really pushed toward, you know, what is your evidentiary foundation, right? What, what kind of primary sources are you using to back up what you are saying? And then, you know, have other historians already said what you've said or, you know, have explored various ranges of the topic that you've explored. And so for me, um, it's, it's butting up against sometimes when the, the, the experience that I am trying to talk about, which may be a personal experience, but it may come from my specific positionality as a black working class woman, right? That's not well represented. That experience is not well represented either in primary or secondary sources, right? And so in, in, in bringing myself into the analysis, I might not be able to point to the evidentiary um, requirements or requisites that the field values. And so that's where the pushback comes, right? That my experience as a black working woman, which of course is not just my experience, right? But based on the black working women I have encountered where I've grown up, right? That I have encountered as a result of the communities that I've been involved in that kind of inform who I am as a person when it's not represented in the traditional archival and historiographical sources, then people say, well, no, well, that's not, that's not, that can't be part of the narrative, right? Or it gets, it gets read as, oh, that's just your personal experience. Um, and while that's valid in some disciplines in history, if there is not a, a, an archival record, then it's not valued. Um, it's not, it's not counted as, you know, as history, right? It's not, it's not able to be analyzed. And I remember specifically when I was starting graduate school, one of the things that my advisor told me at the very beginning of the program is that, oh, well, if it doesn't exist, you can't write about it. If it doesn't exist in historical record, right, which is fraught, right, which is created by fallible human beings with prejudice, right, with, um, you know, racism, right, with, with power dynamics that would exclude uh, certain um, less position, less power position people, right? If it's not in those spaces, then uh, you can't write about it because you have to have evidence, right? And so it's, there's this insistence on specific kinds of evidence which are weighted. Some evidence matters more. Some evidence count more than others. And, and the, the specific evidence of my existence, right, doesn't doesn't count as much and th and that is what i have to fight for when i'm writing black women's histories right when i am trying to um write through the fragments of black women's histories um when i'm saying wait a minute okay i grew up in chicago you know in chicago there's this rich tradition of black club women of black women's activism right? I see it in my family. I see it in the church women who I see every Wednesday through Sunday, 
<laughs> right? As they're, you know, bolstering this church and, and uh, contributing to communities. But then I get to, I get to seminar, right? And we read a book and none of these women appear. And I know I'm not going crazy because I'm like, I just saw them. <laughs> I just encountered them. I touched them. They are real people, right? But because the, 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 the evidence, the fragments of their lives have not been collected and valued, they don't count for the narrative, right? And so that's what I have to, to work um, both with um, and against. Um, and, and when I think about kind of this idea of being inside the circle, it's both having a connection to and a relationship with right, the subject and the topics under study. Not that, you know, I'm trying to say that every Black working class woman's experience is the same and therefore I can speak mine and it just is the same, but that I am connected, right, to these stories and to these histories. And it's that connectedness, which number one, um, informs my understanding that there is a there there, right? And that also makes me um, approach the archive with even more kind of dedication and more kind of determination um, to, to get at these stories because I know I know it's there. I know it's there, right? Um, and I know that I'm there too, right? And so um, that's that's a little bit also of what's behind that. When you say you know it's there. Do you mean that it's there and you just need to find it, or do you mean it's there? It's there in the absences that you see it in in the. Well, so but so so here's the thing: like, I know I may not find it in the archive, right? Because what I what I also know is that um, many times Black women's their actions, their ideas, their their activisms, they're over there doing it. But there is no there's no record of it, right? And so, so for example, uh, two scholars come to mind who do really great work with kind of um, kind of speculation, right? And 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 speculation for historians is a little bit yeah. But for as a fiction writer, you know, you speculate all the time, right? But 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 historians, we don't speculate, right? But there is a scholar, Taya Miles. And um, another scholar, she's not a historian, but she used historical methods, Saidia Hartman. Um, and they kind of speculate in this arena called critical fabulation. And that's kind of the, the, the idea, critical fabulation, where it's like she's speculating, but critically, right? And so what that means is that you're looking at all of the possibilities of the historical moment, right? So for example, if we're in 1960s, urban America, Chicago, we know that there are tons of people who have migrated from South to North. We know they're experiencing um, you know, urban underdevelopment. We know they're experiencing many uh, impo uh, um, uh, poverty. We know, we know what, what the urban environment kind of looks like, right? Because we've done that research, right? Um, we also know that there's a tradition of Black women saying, hey, I'm displeased with what I'm experiencing, right? We, we know that because we, have, we do have some records of that. We may not have the record of that in say, Hyde Park, Southside Chicago. That's a lie because I know we do because that's a rich neighborhood. But anyway, just for the purposes of this kind of, this talk, right, or this, this point. And so what Hartman and what Miles would do is they would critically gesture right at what might that look like even though we have no, like we may only have 
you know, a news, one newspaper article that said, you know, black beauticians scheduled a dance that raised money to send somebody or to purchase a flat iron. I mean, that's a modern tool, but right, like that, that may be all we have. But from that, black beauticians programmed a dance to raise money for a black beautician's tool. Like there's so much we can do with that. Number one, black beauticians were organized. Number two, they cared about um, kind of their, their sister of beauticians. Uh, number three, they also were philanthropic, right? They're raising money to give to someone else in pursuit of some other dream or goal, right? They existed in this urban environment, right? And were, and were doing something about their conditions, right? But none of that was in that, that little thing, right? That little piece, right? And so it's kind of, it's imagining, you know, from a standpoint of what do I know about this historical context or about this context, and then supposing what could happen. And your supposition, right, can come from, again, the archival record. It could come from what's already been written. And for me, where it could come from is my understanding and my positionality and personal experiences, right? I understand Black beauticians because I grew up going to the, back, the Black beauty shop my entire life, right? So I have something to, to critically fabulate about what that experience in organizing tradition may look like. Now, when I go to the state archives and go to the division of cosmetology and look up the, the records of, you know, the black uh, beauty salons, right? It's not gonna say that the black beauty salon, they, they were full of organizers and activists, right? What it's gonna say is that this black beauty salon existed in Hyde Park from 1954 to 1962, and it failed to submit its, you know, its, its, its documents to be, you know, recognized by the state. That's what it's going to say, right? But then you put that together with the little, the little fragment of a newspaper article, and you have a story that you can kind of critically think about all of the possibilities, right? Um, based on um, lots of different ways to look at that with the sources that you do have. Um, and so, yeah, like speculation, which again, is not something that historians are comfortable doing, uh, becomes a way to uncover and recover stories um, that we have just said, okay, well, we just, since we don't got the evidence, we just, we, we they're not gonna be there. But that leaves me out, <laughs> that leaves me out, you know, so. Yeah, thank you, Crystal. So what's the connection between speculation and objectivity, do you think? Right, I mean, so so first I'll say, I don't think any um, scholar or researcher is objective or can be objective. Because even if you, um, you know, you are engaged in some type of um, pursuit of a knowledge or question, the fact that you know, you are engaged in that is a function of your desire and your interest and your mind saying, oh, this is what I want to do. And so already the, the decision to do it makes you, it, it puts you in a particular position where, you know, you chose to do that because of your desires. And so you just can't even be objective because you care about it, right? Because you chose to do it. So I don't think, number one, I don't think anybody um, can be um, objective. And I think what we can do is, is really 
be clear about what draws us to do what we do and why, right? And it could be as simple as, I wanna study bicycles because when I was a kid, I had a red bicycle. Okay, fine, but let, but, but let folks know that that's why you're doing that, right? Um, so, so, so that's you know, kind of the, the, the basis that, um, that I begin from. But then thinking about objectivity um, and speculation, right? Speculation is not just willy-nilly saying, oh, I just think that this could be the case. And that's why it's really important to think about speculation um, in conversation with critical fabulation, because that critical part is really important, right? And for me, um, uh, it, uh, using those in tandem is what makes it work so well, because I am not just speculating, I'm speculating out of, out of um, a context that I have researched and studied. Right. And so in order for me to come up with this with this speculation, I have to have immersed myself in tons of different documents and like and, 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 and narrowed them down and said, oh, OK, if I go down this road, right, X, Y and Z, you know, that means I can't go down that road. Right. Um, if so. And so a good example is, again, Taya Miles, she just wrote this book um, called Ashley Sack, which is basically a material culture analysis of a sack that an enslaved woman gave to her daughter as the daughter was being sold from her, right? And um, um, the sack was found in modern day in like a flea market. And the person who bought it for like $20 um, felt that it was something important. And so she took it to a historical society and they kind of did some analysis and realized that, okay, this is really important. So Taya Miles has written about kind of this sack, right? And all she has is this, this sack, right? But what she's done um, in thinking about the sack and the, and the names of the women who are engraved on the sack. So for example, there's a woman named Rose on the sack. All we know is that Rose was enslaved, that she had a daughter, right? And that the daughter was sold from her. We, uh, Tia Miles kind of figured out that maybe they're from Charleston. So what she does is she goes to the archives, looks up the plantation records, and looks for every rose in Charleston in the plantations during a particular time. And then once she has that list of roses, she looks to see, well, which rose had a daughter by the name of the daughter on the sack? Then she narrows that down, right? And so like speculation is not like, it's, it's based on like really tough, hard research, right? And it, and it requires going down so many dead ends, but also documenting those dead ends so that you can then say, okay, I went down that, that didn't work, right? So that means I can't go down, you know? And so, and so it's really based on kind of deep, deep, deep research. And I think many times people think, people hear, you know, objectivity or subjectivity or closeness to your, your, um, your topic and think, oh, you're sloppy. And I kind of talk about this a little bit. You're sloppy or you're not um, really doing due diligence, but it, it's, the, it's the exact opposite, right? Um, that because you're so close, and, and, and now I'm speaking personally, because I'm so close to this story, I wanna make sure I have done all of my due diligence, right? To make sure I follow every thread, right? So that I can um, really come up with a speculation that makes sense, right? That, that, that could have actually happened, even though I know that I, I am not 100% sure, right?
Yeah, totally. Thanks, Crystal. So, so we have a question here. Um, can you talk more about what things you are doing to be a successful academic outside of academia? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, okay, so another kind of disclaimer or clarification. Um, and it's something that I, I go back and forth on um, a lot. I don't, I don't see myself as fully outside. I see myself as, um, um, you know, I'm not teaching, well, I am teaching a little bit, right? But I'm not a tenure track, tenured professor, um, but I still see myself as desiring and wanting to influence knowledge and knowledge making um, in tons of spaces, including the academy, right? Because as I think about particularly the book that I'm writing on Black women's act activism, I want that to both be accessible to broader publics while also um, contributing to conversations that are happening you know, in, in colleges and universities, right? Um, and so I don't, I don't totally see myself as outside of um, the academy, but I, I love the heart of the question um, in terms of like, how am I defining success for myself outside of a system that has very specific understandings of what success looks like, right? So how am I doing that for myself? Um, and so for me, um, it really is um, thinking about what types of um, activities um, and relationships am I engaging in that make Black history more accessible to everyone, right? It also means thinking about what kind of institutional and structural barriers do I need to lend my voice and expertise to, you know, to, to break down these barriers that, will, that would inhibit people from getting access to these types of histories and stories. And so successful for me really hinges on who am I talking to, right? Who am I, who am I being exposed to or who are, who are being exposed, right, to the types of stories that I'm trying to tell? Um, right. And so for me, that that comes with, you know, the stuff I'm doing in the museum. It comes with community organizations I may be interested in and involved with. And it comes with continuing to research and write um, and interact with um, communities across the country so that I can make sure um, that the stories that are in the American History Museum are representative of the diversity of um, the experiences specifically in the United States, because that's what, you know, that's our geographic um, um, focus. But also what I want to also say in terms of being successful and what I have really um, decided to prioritize is my own kind of personal life and personal desires for both kind of advancement as the person Crystal wants to be in terms of being, you know, a sister, a partner, a daughter, right, a cousin, an organizer, right, and, and, and what, what would allow me to be successful, you know, not only professionally, but personally, too, because if I'm not thinking about, you know, who I am personally, then I can't really be successful professionally, and so especially within the last few years, I've really been trying to focus on, okay, how can I take care of myself, you know, um, intellectually, mentally, physically, emotionally, right? So that I can be the best um, 
professional that I can be. Um, and so that question just really, for me, it hits on not just me professionally, but who I am as a person and how all of this intersects. Because um, I think for so long, you know, when I was at, when I was a professor, you know, I just thought success meant being that good teacher, you know, making sure I published my scholarship, you know, making sure I was contributing to the life of the institution I was involved in. And if I could do that, then I'm successful. But it, it just, there's, there's so much more to, to what success is. And I learned that I have to define it for myself. Otherwise I'll be chasing, you know, someone else's definition that I might not ever catch up to. Thank you. Yeah. Helpful. Yeah. So what surface, what questions is this surfacing for everyone? Any, Jill? Um, so I guess my question, well, I have kind of two big questions really might take us back to um, your opening comments about if, if I've understood the trajectory, you were an assistant professor at McAllister when you saw the opening at Smithsonian mm -hmm. MAH. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you said that you'd kind of just saw the role and went after it, right? And learned about the day-to-day -day during the hiring process. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could reflect for us, since so many of us are sort of on the cusp of transitioning fully or partially out of academia, yeah. Um, what kind of steps you took to reframe your skills? Because there is a pretty um, distinct stratification, right, between the historian in academia and the curator. Um, or what kind of avenues you pursued or conversations you had to make yourself a viable candidate for that position when much of your work history was housed within academia. Yeah. And then the second big question is, um, I'm just wondering if you have any tips or strategies for the networked scholar, the independent scholar, um, for maintaining access to resources, because that's the one thing that we often involuntarily give up, right, when we lose mm -hmm. an institutional affiliation. Um, I myself have been adjuncting for the last few years just to retain, like, library access, you know, and that's becoming unsustainable for a number of reasons. So if you have any thoughts about how to kind of keep, keep your, oneself hooked into that element of university life, I'd appreciate your thought. Yeah, great. Um, so as to your first question in terms of thinking about, again, um, I think, think what's at the heart of it is being able to transfer or articulate how the skill set I had as a professor could map onto the role of curator, right? And what was the process by which I did that transformation and what kinds of conversations I needed to have in order to make that happen. Um, and so you know, the, when I saw the, the position description for curator of African-American history, a few things stood out to me. Uh, one was that the, the, at, the, at the top of the list was that you had to have experience researching African-American history. The next part was that you had to have experience um, writing and communicating what you researched. The next part was that you had to um, uh, you had to have um, some exposure to thinking kind of broadly about audience, um, broadly about education, et cetera. At the very like kind of bottom, or I would say mid to bottom, was like this requirement that you know you got to collect objects. And so what I did was like, okay, well, I've got three of the four. I got three of the four, you know, I've been doing three of the four for a long 
time. And so um, three and a four for a long time. And then it just so happened that when I was in graduate school, my advisor taught a gender studies class that was on things and theme theory, which is basically about material, culture, and objects. And so I was like, I also have some coursework. <laughs> so, but what I had to do was kind of craft that in a way to say, okay, I have, I have most of what you're looking for and I'm open to being taught the rest, right? And when, and, and that was enough to give me a conversation with the hiring committee. You know, once, once my application made it through the, the black hole of the Smithsonian HR process, I was able to have a conversation, like an initial conversation with the hiring committee, wherein, wherein I was very honest. I said, well, you know, I, you all know I'm a professor. <laughs> you all know that most of my, you know, experience is with the research and the communicating part of, um, of the job description. I have never worked, I love museums, but I have never worked in a museum. And what I asked them was, how are you gonna train me? And the answer to that question let me know that they were open to a person with my skill set. And they were like, you know, there are, there are training opportunities that the museum can both provide and support you in pursuing to help you um, kind of get uh, to round out the skill set of a curator. And what, and what I will say, what kind of reflecting on this, um, it makes me think that especially as you are as, as you know you are all in a position where you're transitioning from something you know how to do, um, you have practice in to something you may not, um, really, really throwing your hat in and, and, and when you get the opportunity to talk to the folks in the position, you're letting them know that you can learn, you want to learn, right? And that because you already have a process for knowing how to research and find answers, you can do it, right? Um, I have so many stories, but a, a, a small story is that in graduate school, I did not, I was not exposed to black feminist theory at all, at all. But what do I call myself? <laughs> a black feminist historian, right? I taught myself that, right? If you could teach yourself an entire field, and then you and know how to apply it to you know your research area. There are many things you can learn how to do, but you have to you have to figure out if the position you are interested in, right? If they are open and flexible in being partners in your learning and your teaching, in your learning and your pursuit of you know of, of a new skill set. And what I found out was that the museum was because I had the majority of what they were looking for, they were willing, right, to take the risk and understand that, okay, she learned all this, she can learn how to do this, you know? And she may not know how to be a curator coming in, right, but we are willing um, to help her learn. And so that's kind of um, how I kind of approach that. And at each step of the interviewing process, I just, you know, I ask tons of questions with the understanding that I am making a, a professional transition. Like no one was, that was not a surprise to anyone. Like I am making a professional transition. How are you gonna help me be successful? <laughs> you know, and just be like, be open 
uh, to those conversations and the answers to those questions let me know that, okay, I can come into this position because I will feel supported and I will be able to learn in it. Right. Thank you. I mean, that's a really encouraging and helpful answer. Yeah. And then your second question about um, access to resources and what I'll just echo, I'll just say is just echo the difficulty, right, that um, it is continuing to get those act to get that access um, and, and what I've just done is similar to what you've done, just try to align myself um, with the institutions that have the resources that I need. And so although I'm at the Smithsonian, we don't have all of the resources, which is why I also adjunct to, and I adjunct at a major research university so I can have you know, more resources. But that, that is a, a problem of, um, a problem of, um, Oh, the word just jumped out of my mind, but it, it's a serious difficulty for folks who are trying to be knowledge makers and knowledge creators outside of, um, you know, the professoriate, you know. And so what I have found is, is that um, it's not uniform all around, but more and more um, repositories, more and more uh, digital databases have particular um, levels of access for people who are not tied to an institution that allow access um, at kind of like more affordable rates, understanding that you are not a library and you don't have access to a library. So you may need to, you know, me pay a little bit less to get access to some of these resources. But then, you know, me being a person who's interested in digital, um, I'm also interested in kind of open access um, and making sure that as I think about how what I am producing gets out there, that it gets out there free, right? And it, it, it really is going to take more, more people involved in, in knowledge making to, 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 to do that, right? So that we can, we can begin to remove some of these barriers, but also, um, again, thinking about how to think about change on an institutional and structural level. And I think we're moving, we're creeping toward that, but we're just not there yet. Um, and so it just requires some hacking. I, thank you. Um, I have one more question, but I, I wanted, to, looks like we have time for about one more. So I also wanted to give the option to everyone on the floor. Uh, anyone have anything they wanna ask? Tanya. Thank you, Crystal, for such a great conversation. You're really uh, an inspiring person. And oh. I, I, I don't know if I have a question, it's just more maybe like a comment, but I can see from your podcast and also from this conversation, how important imagination has been in your professional development. You talk about historical imagination. And now I see that you use the same strategy to imagine yourself in, in a position that you maybe couldn't, if you follow like a traditional path in what we consider academia, whatever that means. Uh, so I don't know, I'm just really curious about uh, your experience embracing that imagination as a so important um, aspect in your in your development as a professional and scholar. And yeah, thank oh, you. Oh, Tanya, I, lo I love that. And, and, and you are so perceptive for kind of calling that out in the sense, and I would, you know, I would, um, Growing up, I was an avid kind of reader of, of all types of like literature. And so I would just 
constantly be in other worlds. <laughs> and part of it was because, you know, sometimes my own world was very difficult, you know, and so I would read these books, you know, be in other worlds and just kind of also in being in those other worlds, see myself in other places. Um, I'm also the type of person where I have to visualize, you know, my in my mind, whatever I'm doing, right? And so right now, the visualization, the visualization that I have is that I'm on a book tour next year, you know, because if I don't imagine myself on it, I, I'm not going to get to it. And so it, that, that, that imagination for me is also tied to spiritual belief. I'm a very spiritual person. And so it's imagination, it's, it's belief. Um, because, you know, there, there are tremendous odds against people like us. Right. Um, and so if I don't have this sense of, I'm going to see myself doing the thing I want and then believe enough to do it. And then also work my ass off, <laughs> you know, it just won't happen. But like this, this imagination, it becomes really important because like, as you mentioned, there's some things that, you know, even with my, even my imagination is limited. Right. But what imagination does it is it sometimes it lifts you from your present circumstance um, to, to get you propelled toward where you might want to be, right? And, you know, you know, you have to be mindful, right? You just can't totally live in your imagination. But sometimes living in your imagination um, can take you to places you never thought you wanted to be. And, and that's, the, that's the truth about this job at the Smithsonian. I didn't go out looking for this job. One of my friends sent me the link to these jobs. And I was like, what is a curator? <laughs> <laughs> and then I began to read and research, right? Um, and then I imagined myself doing Black history before a national audience and what that could look like and what that could mean and all of that, you know? And so, yeah, Tanya, I, yeah, so imagination, yes, and creativity and belief. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Crystal. This was amazing. Really glad to have you. And I know you have so much going on, so we appreciate your time. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. Love being here. It's so nice to see you all and meet you all and hear from you. And I just wish you all the best of luck in your future endeavors as you decide, you know, what direction you want to take your life in. May you in, uh, feel inspired and confident um, in who you are and what you bring to the table. Thank you. That's that's wonderful. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, writer, medievalist, and founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by our fearless creative director, Sophia Van Hees, in collaboration with Nicole Markland, Dashara Green, Eufemia Baldassare, and Matthew Tomkinson. Matthew composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio slash podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedum-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose lands you're on. 